And when two men mansplain to each other, that's called a podcast. I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Tradesplaining, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to sleep. On episode 48, we will talk about why your office building may be being sold for just five cents on the dollar, changing luxury trends, must include watches, I'm assuming, and supply chain problems in the UK? No. Italy. Yeah. And later we'll talk with Annette from the Enhanced Integrated Framework about how to promote trade for least developed countries and... Whether green or digital came first in the whole trade thing. The whole twin transition. Exactly. And we'll throw in a few points of listener feedback and sneak in a news roundup and, of course, a few jokes. So let's get into it before our building gets bought out. Welcome to episode 48. That would be the atomic number of cadmium. I think it's the special chocolate from the UK or maybe from Chernobyl. I'm not sure. Maybe it's the favorite element of handsy guys. I don't know what that is. You just took Your me on a tangent there. What it is not is not the design software that they made us use in high school computer class, which served no purpose because I'm not an engineer. Commodore 64? You know what 48 is? I literally had that in high school, Commodore 64. No, no, no I had that. I think it was an Intel. You took me off on a tangent there, but 48 Hours is also the 1982 film starring everyone's favorite angry old white man, Nick Nolte, and Eddie Murphy, the classic duo. 48 is also the calling code assigned to Poland. and while Where my nephew's doing an internship. Fantastic. Thanks for that. Humble brag. <laughs> and Arizona was the 48th state admitted to the union. Just in time for Biden to win it. Yeah, right before all of those illegal votes were supposedly cast. Actually, I can add to this that Wisconsin was incorporated as a state in 1848. Was it really? Yeah. I don't know how the research team missed that. Sorry, Wikipedia. 48 is also finally the number of mountain peaks in New Hampshire, which are 4,000 feet above sea level. Funny story about New Hampshire. 1,300 meters. I just came back from New York. And you, Rob and Michelle, you guys think that I, I feel like am, it's going to take a long time for this to is, get around to New Hampshire. And it'll take even longer if you keep <laughs> stopping it. <laughs> if you guys think that I am always the one giving out fun facts about Staten Island, you have not met my dad and my brother. I just came back from New York and it was literally 10 days of just fun facts. Did you know, for example, that Toad Hill on Staten Island is the highest point on the eastern seaboard of the U.S. if you don't count anything above Maine and New Hampshire? No, I did, I did not know that. But thank you. You did but, get around to New Hampshire. Yeah, thank you for yeah, that. Yeah, it did. Yeah. there. You know, I should also mention before uh, talking more about New Hampshire is that you can and should subscribe to the Smash podcast. Smash that subscription button. You keep saying it, they might break their phones. Subscribe to the podcast to make sure you catch our next episode coming out very soon. And better yet, you can also share it with a friend or stranger. Sharing is caring after all. You can find this anywhere you get your podcasts. So make sure you subscribe to all of them. And why not leave us a review? And speaking of reviews, we did receive one comment slash diatribe via email. Apparently, we thought that it was very witty, or I did smart and maybe smarmy to talk about the Finns being more eco-friendly than the rest of us by that news story about them replacing flights with buses, which I thought was hilarious. Apparently, America was first on that. American Airlines, that is. So a listener asked us if, quote, and I'm quoting here, if it's amateur hour over there at TS. Answer, Yes. The answer, yes, and he asked- Every hour is, is amateur hour at TS. He asked, what is your research team doing over there? 
He was quick to remind us that the Finns were really just copying what was already happening in the U.S. So American Airlines has already been replacing planes with buses on very short-haul flights. For example, Philadelphia to some town in Pennsylvania I've never heard of. Or Staten Island to New York. There is no airport in Staten Island. You would have to land by plane. By plane. By, uh, by seaplane. Plane. Seaplane. Seaplane. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, seaplane. You have to land. <laughs> Boss de plane. <laughs> Cut. Moving on, what, have you heard anything, Rob? I'm sure there's something angry from your probably extended family about complaining about something I've said. Um, yes, in the last episode, we did mention that we had repeated the phrase, everything, everywhere, all the time. And our listener, who's also part of the nuclear family, told me that I even got the quote wrong when I was trying to repeat it. So I'll come back to you on that a little bit later. Also, I was next to a colleague who's an avid listener, and this is the utility of a podcast like Tradesplaining. She mainly likes to listen to it when she does not have to concentrate so much, such as when she's cleaning the house. And I would just like to say again, Tradesplaining is happy to help. As long as she uses sustainably sourced products. This, Yeah, thank you very much. A very important point. Is this a reference to succession? Is that where we're going with it? With a small loan? No, we'll get to that. Maybe in another episode. <laughs> Cue succession music. So let's jump right into the important stories this episode. Anything As, to do with trade this time? Um, yes, everything is tangentially to do with trade. And I wanted to say this is our not China episode. This is like the seven degrees of separation. There's seven <laughs> degrees of separation between every China's story back there and China and or trade. First one up. So we've got lots of chirping in the news lately about how commercial properties are about to explode. And I think you can probably draw a straight line or some have from 10 years of sort of free money, COVID hitting us unexpectedly, then hitting us again with rising interest rates, and then bad bank bets have sort of led to this commercial property sort of explosion. I'm sure there's a Jeff Goldblum reference in there somewhere. Property finds a way. <laughs> something about <laughs> chaos theory or something. Yeah. But uh, everybody from Charlie Munger to FT op-ed columnists to others are crying out about how distressed sales are signaling sort of not a great outlook for commercial real estate. Charlie Munger has said that U.S. banks specifically are full of bad commercial property loans. I'm wondering if there'll need to be some kind of correction or house cleaning, if you will. That would be probably a good... Building cleaning. A good case. <laughs> that would be the best case scenario. Worst case would be a financial crisis. I think there's a lot of wealth in the U.S., especially that's tied up in property. Yeah, We know commercial property. Me too. We also know that some of these buildings, and we've seen them, just as you're saying, we've seen it also in Geneva, the amounts people are paying for these buildings are astronomical because of cheap money. Hmm. Now we come around, money's not cheap anymore, but also occupancy rates have not come back. Hmm. They got up to 50%, they were edging above 50%, some say 60, depends on what data you use, but they're not getting to where they were before. And people I think are panicking and unloading buildings because they don't think folks are coming back to the office. Now we hear a lot about CEOs say you gotta come back, managers say you gotta come back. And with labor markets still being tight in a place like the US, they can't tell people to come back because folks will just walk. Find another job. And Gen Z people will also enjoy a little bit of fun employment. Fun employment. So we've got potentially a huge correction going on. If that wealth goes down, this can have impacts throughout the economy. So let's see. As you mentioned, there's also a lot of bad commercial debt. Banks are not in a happy place as it is. I think the after effects from COVID and sort of the work from home 
I don't know if you can call it a revolution or if that's just hyperbole, but I think that's sort of settling in now. I think we might see a turnaround if and when there is a recession or quite a big economic correction, because then employers will have more of the leverage rather than, which is not the case at this point. I think if you go around just Geneva, which is sort of a financial center, you see lots of empty stores. And that's obviously anecdotal, but most of this podcast is actually anecdotal. Yeah, that's called research for us. <laughs> Call the research team as one listener <laughs> exactly. comment. <laughs> Gotta do their jobs. The other thing I want to talk about, and again, this is sort of tangentially related to trade. I guess it's more broadly about how we consume things moving forward. But there seems to be perceived changes in luxury trends, and these might mean changes in how we consume things in the future. Or that is the question, will it? mean changes in how we consume things. So Gen Zers, there's lots of articles recently about how Gen Z is sort of redefining the value of the luxury market, everything from watches to bags to shoes, especially watches. <laughs> essentially, status and prestige are out and sustainability and inclusivity are the buzzwords that are sort of taking hold, I should say. <laughs> Transitory, to quote Jerome Powell and the other central bank governors. There was another article, which I think I sent to you, Rob. I know you did not want me to talk about it, but it was basically about how the 20... better not be about China. No, even better. It's about watches. So the 28-year-old head of Tag Heuer... He works harder than anybody. He does. He also happens to be the son of Bernard Arnault. Yeah. He's apparently looking to turn it into a billion-dollar brand, and that's the front page of the Wall Street Journal. So Gen Z is leading the... The consumers are redefining how we purchase luxury purchases, but also they're leading the companies who are following these trends. So first of all, how is Gen Z affording luxury items? That None of the stories really help me understand that, and I'm a little pissed off about it. Like Gen <laughs> Z is not going to tell me how much... A $10,000 handbag, how sustainable that should be? That's an investment, okay? Because you can't get into the stock market because it was absurdly overpriced for so long. You couldn't get into the real estate market. You still yeah. can't, at least in the U.S. Yeah. So you're looking at things. and I Watches. Mean, exactly. We make it, which is not, it shouldn't be the case, but there are crypto, for example. So you're constantly, <laughs> you've got Gen Z constantly looking for like the upside when they're Probably isn't one. I think it's interesting because I get a lot of newsletters about consumer products and the way markets are moving. And they are talking about this segment as a segment. They're trying to, of course, get hooked on stuff early. And that has a lot of buying power. It's amazing. But also, we saw over COVID that a lot of brands, even brands we don't know as luxury brands, were moving up. Exactly. They're moving up and up categories. And so they need to know where these kinds of luxury trends are going. And I think sustainability, yes, may be in. But is a $10,000 timepiece being sustainable? Is that really going to move the needle? Hey, a protect, <laughs> hey, hey, an Omega Rolex lasts a lifetime. What's more sustainable than that? Well, exactly, exactly. And that, That's uh, literally the pit. I mean, I'm being facetious. No, no. The fact that you took a first-class flight on Emirates to come buy it might be less sustainable. I don't hey, know. Hey, I offset the carbon emissions when I purchased the ticket. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, know, you can click the somebody button. Plant, somebody planted a tree on Staten Island when I got on my flight in Dubai. <laughs> While I cut the one here. <laughs> no, I think that your point on how luxury is becoming a bigger and bigger segment, at least in large parts of the world, is highlighted by the fact that smartwatches, so at one point a couple of years ago, all you read about is how they're taking over and they're representing even bigger sales than the Swiss luxury watch industry, I should say. Everybody was sort of portending doom for that industry. It seems that the tides have shifted a bit, particularly in the last two, three years. They no longer are the threat they seem to be, or at least this is what people are printing now in these same articles, these same newspapers, etc. And that's because I guess they're one not expensive enough. Yeah, not expensive enough. You can throw them out. They're not sustainable <laughs> enough. You throw them out after a year. I think also, I know you're a little frustrated with one of the 
Apple Watches. One of the Apple Watches. We won't mention the brand. I, I actually don't own one. I don't own one because it's not sustainable enough. Yeah, and you didn't like it when you got one. Okay, you're going to laugh at me, but somebody sent me an article, a link the other day about a, Thanks, listeners. a green watch made from recycled Nespresso capsules. Another plastic watch, folks. literally. But this one, this one cost twenty thousand dollars. So thank That's you, all right. thank That's you, Hublot. Right. That's where we want to be. It's literally bright green, made from recycled Nespresso capsules, and it's. I guess they're trying to catch that Gen Z nepo baby market. So I think it is interesting how Gen Z is influencing consumption, and you may have, let's say, it's the canary in the coal mine for further changes in our expectations of sustainability of certain products. We've talked about it before. It is something out there, but it hasn't, let's say, for instance, the apparel industry has not changed yet. That's not a luxury segment. I've been hearing how it's changing. Well, fast fashion is not really a thing anymore, is it? Okay, they say it's not. We don't like it anymore. But on every high street, these stores are still having incredible turnover and the profits are enormous. I only shop at Brunello Cuccinelli. Bless you. These... Yeah, I think if we can build on what you were talking about a little bit more, it's not only Gen Z, which is forcing us to rethink our consumption patterns, but also I guess climate change might also be doing the same. And this is for everyone's favorite coffee, which Gen Z loves, because I just came back from New York and baristas, that's like the second most employable job. Tattoos are expensive, man. I don't know how these guys are affording this uh, sleeves and so on. Tattoos and baristas. It's like Williamsburg is just like one Nepo baby utopia of barbers. (laughs) baristas and tattoo earrings piercings you can can have your espresso made by the barista while you're getting a haircut overpriced haircut with a drink in your hand is this maybe directed at me no yeah maybe anyway vietnam is going all in on climate change resistant coffee bean which really wasn't getting love until now so uh, up until now for coffee lovers arabica was really the bean that was most used and for obvious reasons because it's sort of a bit more complex than what they call deliciously refined according to companies like starbucks i didn't make that up but climate change seems to be sort of shifting these fortunes so the arabica is quite hypersensitive to fluctuations in temperatures which is not a good thing when the world is heating up like a hot. It's not a good thing. thing. Yeah, in these microclimates. Exactly. Right? And so coffee producers are moving more towards the Robusta plant, which, like its name suggests, grows robustly in tougher conditions, much tougher conditions, and it's sort of making a comeback. It's like the ugly stepbrother is making a comeback. So Vietnam is, for example, responsible for more than half of global Robusta supply around the world. And uh, it's playing much more bigger role in sort of efforts to get rescue coffee from the effects of climate change. And it may be seen in five, 10 years from now, we'll be drinking Robusta, which is blander and more disgusting, but it will still cost the same amount at your Starbucks. I don't know about blander. I think it's said to be more acid. It's higher in caffeine. Are you describing me? Or? It's harsher. This is you. Some mornings I, <laughs> when I see on WhatsApp, there's a lot of, <laughs> you're harsher, more acid, but also... I was really interested that the plant, the most robust one, and there it's resistant to heat and so on, is called the green dwarf. Like I want to, they said they call this thing the green dwarf. It's more robust. It's shorter. It's, Are you making a Hezbollah joke right smoke, now? You're gonna smoke this. Are you making a Hezbollah <laughs> joke right? Like now? I want to smoke the green dwarf. But uh, yeah, I, people are gonna change their the mix arabica versus robusta. Almost every coffee is some sort of a blend. We could also change our taste profile, and of course they can refine robustas more. Before, it's been very much a commodity crop, including mm-hmm. the Vietnamese Robusta. And now they're thinking of ways to differentiate it. This was true 10 years ago, but it wasn't getting any traction. Now they're actually thinking about it. And we see places like Colombia, which is almost all Arabica, I think it's 100% Arabica, has had 
a series of setbacks where they just their production is lower. Mm. And so this is going to be potentially a theme. Mm. And so you'll see people using it even as a marketing gimmick. You know, now we're 100% Robusta. Starbucks is actually going to literally yes. whitewash everything <laughs> good they said about Arabica and just say Robusta is it. That was the way before. And then because it's higher in caffeine, you're going to see people stuck to the ceiling. They hopped up. <laughs> they'll be stabbing each other with their, <laughs> with with their, their swizzle sticks and well, their, their stirs. Well, the one good thing about climate change is we've all got those mushy paper straws now, so they can't stab them with anything plastic. Paper can't go through you. It can go through you. Depends yeah. on how much caffeine you've had, <laughs> how it's administered. Annette Samoemba is the Deputy Executive Director at the Executive Secretariat of the Enhanced Integrated Framework, or the EIF, the World Trade Organization. My old job. When it's called enhanced, you know it's got to be good. It must be. Prior to that, she was Chief Strategy and Results Officer and member of the Senior Leadership Team at Trademark East Africa. Also my old job. For the past 20 plus years, her work has focused on trade capacity and technical assistance programs at regional and global levels. She has also led strategy design and implementation of programs in trade and customs, infrastructure logistics, gender and productive capacity, and many other areas. So Annette, thanks for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Why don't we start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you end up working in the trade space and in the EIF in particular? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I refer to myself as an East African citizen of Ugandan nationality because when I've lived and worked in most of the countries in East Africa, I'm an economist by profession and I have worked in the trade space for the last 20 years, actually a little over 20 years, mainly in trade facilitation but also contributing to regional integration efforts around trade-related areas. Prior to my work here at the WTO with the EIF, I worked with an organization called Trademark East Africa, and this is a multi-donor-funded program that worked at that time mainly in East Africa, but has since rebranded to Trademark Africa and is working in many more countries than it did at that time. And so it was a natural fit for me to come to the EIF because the EIF as well does similar work slightly differently, and I'll explain later. But because I was already working in an area around building institutional capacities and soft and hard infrastructure engagement with the private sector, engaging with governments to design interventions that support economic development, the EIF was a natural sort of opportunity for me, and I've really enjoyed working here. So my parents usually think when I start dropping acronyms, so whether it's WTO, UN, UNCTAD, they think they just say, okay, he works with the CIA, and that's it. We won't ask any more questions. So for our listeners and probably my parents, what is the EIF? <laughs> you just reminded me of a joke. This morning, I said to somebody that I have a friend that works with ISO, and this person said, oh, internal security. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I said, no, it's international standards organization. So <laughs> same thing. Anyway, so the EIF is a multi-donor funded program that is exclusively dedicated to countries that are poorest in the world. They are referred to as least developed countries. Again, terminology there. But in essence, these are the countries that need the support the most. These are countries that are faced with extreme barriers that impede their ability to access international markets. So the EIF is a program 
that provides the necessary technical and financial resources to help these countries address these barriers. The EIO works in different ways, actually, from some of the partners. We start our work engaging with the countries to identify where the main challenges lie. So through some analytical work, research work, and this work is undertaken with international agencies such as the World Bank. And once we've determined where the challenges lie the most, they could be institutional, they could be policy-related, they could be in sectors of economic importance. We then direct resources to either of those areas to ensure that these countries can then start to address some of these challenges leading to improvements that would then allow them to be able to access international markets. I hope that is simple enough in terms of what the EIF is and what we do. It's a program that's been in a place for only 10 years, but has had transformational results across the 46 LDCs. Before this, the number of countries were 51, but a few countries have since graduated from that category. Yeah, most people, when they hear development, they sort of assume that there's a sort of one-size-fits-all approach, but EIF is interesting to hear that they're very much focused on one particular subset of that. So it's interesting in that regard. Um, The next thing we wanted to know about, so this is something that Rob was keen to ask, but since he's in a meeting, which probably should have been an email and is going over time, you're stuck with me on this and I'll have to ask it. So during COVID, one thing we've seen is that the SDGs seem to have at least lost some momentum. Regaining that, I guess, is something that will require a lot of international cooperation, and we're seeing sort of that starting up a little bit more. But what we'd like to know is how can programs like the EIF, which is based in the WTO and other development actors, contribute to that? Because a lot of what we hear lately is, well, WTO bad, trade bad, etc. But how can we change the narrative on that? Indeed, I think COVID was huge, brought significant challenges for many countries, especially the LDCs. But I think there are also quite a number of lessons that were learned. And I always want to look at things from a positive sort of trajectory. And one of the things that we learned, in my view, was the important role of e-commerce and digital trade. This is a huge opportunity, irrespective of the digital divide, irrespective of the lack of accessibility to internet in many countries. COVID brought to light a huge opportunity through digital trade. And I think one of the opportunities that we could harness is for us to get engaged and to try and identify what are the key challenges that countries are faced, what are the key challenges that ordinary citizens are faced with, women that are involved in trade, the youth, how can they access markets using e-commerce and through digital trade means? So again, from the experiences during covid We also observed that other actors, like women, for instance, the youth, these were also badly impacted. And putting in place programs that are targeted towards these communities will be very, very important. And at the EIF, we have an initiative, Empower Women Power Trade, that we started, targeted specifically at women entrepreneurs and women-led businesses. So trying to understand how we can continue to support them for transformation of products that they are putting to the market, for enabling them to meet the necessary standards for them to be able to access markets, but also to have the connectivity to the market through either digital means or the usual trade as was before COVID. We have some really basic examples of how we've helped 
at the EIF. I do recall during the pandemic how we had to reorganize our own resources to be able to ensure that countries have tools that they need, tools such as access to a Zoom license to just be able to connect with a buyer who's based somewhere in another part of the world or a Zoom license to just be able to bring people together to discuss a topic of common interest. They are simple solutions. They are more complex solutions, but I think bringing our heads together and working along through partnerships, trying to understand the challenges and thinking up out of the box for solutions, I think is one way that we can all make a contribution. It's interesting to hear that because people often associate the UN agencies and sort of development actors as not necessarily the most agile. But I think COVID forced all of us, and it's interesting to hear that it's forced you as well to sort of adapt and become a bit more agile in how you respond to issues like this and things that are might seem innocuous or are not such a big deal to us. Things like a Zoom license could be make or break or for businesses in, in other parts of the world. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk about, so you kind of answered the last question we wanted to touch on, which is digital and green. But for you, do they go necessarily hand in hand or does one come before the other when we're talking about developing countries or LTCs or least developed countries in in particular? You know, it's sort of a chicken and egg situation. They are intertwined in many ways. Digital trade allows for connectivity to markets, but on the other hand, it's important that what we're putting out to the markets also meets the goals for green trade. So it's sort of an intertwined situation in my view. I don't feel that you can disaggregate one from the other. Green trade, sustainable trade is very, very important. We see very, very many small businesses trying to adapt their production methods so that they are more environmentally cautious. We see more engagement, more discussions around how to green businesses. Lots of expertise coming through how to access climate funding, countries putting in place different mitigation or adaptation strategies. But on the other hand, all this is meant to promote trade. So for me, they are not mutually exclusive. I think we really need to consider the two as important goals that need to be pursued. Mm. I think that'll bring us to the next sort of set of questions we have. And one thing we like to bring out in the podcast interviews that we have is sort of Rob and I both started here in Geneva as expats. You're also an expat. What have you learned about your home country in Uganda while living abroad that you hadn't realized before you left? It's the cultural shock. Certain things that I thought would be obvious in my own country are not that obvious in uh, other parts of the world. And I think that's really important to recognize The fact that it's not very easy to access certain services. While I come from a country which is one of the least developed countries, services are much easier to obtain and it's unbelievable. I will give you an example. If back home I needed to make an order from a pharmacy for certain medication, I can call my motorcycle rider. I will send him by WhatsApp. Um, my prescription, he will go pick it up for me from the pharmacy. I don't even need to pay them and they will deliver it for me at home. And as such, I would have avoided the traffic jam. I would have made a contribution to his own daily wages for the day. So that's how it works. Those synergies, the informal and the formal economy working well together. It's different here. I need to get out and do everything on my own. Even if I wanted to pay for it, then I need to pay through the nose. 
to be able to do that. So for me, it was a bit of a shocker. And um, in terms of the culture, I see, say on the bus, different ways that things would be different back home. I would probably be saying hello to different people and smiling and chatting. Yeah, you just can't <laughs> chit chat with people because either they are so yeah, they focused or engrossed in their own world and don't really have time to engage with other people or it's just not the culture. They would say, why is this person talking exactly. to me? Exactly. <laughs> so it's the cultural shock well, for me. Yeah. So eat your heart out, Uber. It's much easier to get your medication elsewhere, right? Not just the US. So thanks for nothing, Uber. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing a listener wrote us, I have to say, is there's a rumor that apparently after it's mandated is over, the IF, which is the Enhanced Integrated Framework, will be renamed the Super Enhanced Integrated Framework. Care to comment? Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Super Enhanced. I like the qualifications to sort of make it become even more important. But seriously... I think that the role of the EIF is still critical because we still have 46 countries that uh, need support. And so any enhancements to the program, I think, would be value adding in terms of what it would be called. I still think, and, and I've listened to many people that come up to me and say, why is it the enhanced integrated framework? Why don't you just come up with trade capacity building program for LDCs? That's obvious for everyone. Why are you enhancing things and... Because people don't want to fall asleep when you tell them the name. Yeah, like so <laughs> I hope that we'll come up with something very interesting. Excellent. So that clears it up. I, for one, think that if you want to get more French speakers on board, you just call it the Mega Enhanced Integrated Framework because they, they prefer that over Super. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> yeah, we'll take that into account. Last, last thing we want to touch on before we let you go. So this is kind of Rob's favorite question. He likes to be a bit methodical and take lots of inputs for our calculations, but as an expat living in Geneva, you must have eaten the national food here, which is, of course, not fondue, but it's kebab. Which is your favorite kebab in Geneva, if you have one? And since Rob is not here, I'll take the opportunity to say that it's probably Elamir <laughs> and not Parfum de Beirut. You know, I tried a few until I landed on this veg kebab. You can't believe it. It was very <laughs> nice. Very, very nice. So that's my favorite. And I found a few places in town that you, you can find this delicacy. Very, very nice. So for me, it's a veg. We'll take that and we'll have to post the links to your other recommendations for the veggie kebab on our show notes because listeners, I'm sure, will be intrigued because they're probably tired of parfum de berries. Exactly. <laughs> this is something different, but I encourage everyone to try it. I mean, it's different and it's very nice. So Annette, before we go, where can people go to find more about the work that the EIF is doing in general? Um, the best place, I think, would be to subscribe to our newsletter, Trade for Development News. You can find it by a simple Google. We release this newsletter every month and we always have latest coverage of what's happening around the LDCs, what we're doing as a team, uh, what our partners are also bringing to the table as part of the contribution. It's really an interesting newsletter to read through. I would also encourage our website We've got lots of resources there on our website, but we can also be reached directly. We also have our social media handles, EIF for LDCs. We are on Twitter, we are on Instagram, we are on LinkedIn, and we are very active. And by following us or by engaging with us, you will be able to obtain lots of information about what we're doing. We can answer very specific questions as they relate to your areas of interest. 
or just provide general information. Excellent. Thanks so much. Annette, thanks once again for joining us. It's been a pleasure to learn more about the EIF and hear a bit more about what you're doing, as well as Veggie Kebabs. Mm. You're most welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much. So that brings us to our next segment, Artie. This is where our correspondent, Michelle Olguin, talks us to us about what could possibly be the end of globalization, part of the vibe shift. So, Michelle, is globalization finally dead? Well, today, actually, I want to talk about food and how that might mean that not only globalization, but the entire economy is crumbling down. I don't know if you remember about two years ago when charcuterie boards kind of became a thing. Little shark-shaped ones, even. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a big thing on TikTok and everybody was doing it. I remember I went to visit my sister in Houston and she ordered a charcuterie board and those were so expensive. What did you think in general of charcuterie boards? Good, bad, fake? We were pretty cool in Europe. We we're just like, ha, 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 not funny because we have real ones. We have a charcuterie. Board. Charcuterie. We don't need those. Yeah, that, that's how we thought. Exactly. Yeah. Well, actually, it downgraded from there to butterboards. I think you may not be as familiar with butterboards. I think you meant butterball. That was my nickname in um, <laughs> grad school. <laughs> Meatloaf. So the idea there was just to get butter on a board, literally different types of butter, and then your guests could kind of scrape bread on them and eat the butter, which is definitely a step down from a charcuterie board, I think. It's also cheaper. Exactly. It's cheaper. Inflation. But like and you know what's the trend now? Ice. Designer ice, which is just water frozen in a special shape. So what does the trend tell us here? That the economy is crumbling because people are going through ice instead of charcuterie boards. I think this is just further proof that trends are cyclical because vanilla ice, if I remember correctly, was a thing back in the early 90s. <laughs> but also there's some ice that's so big you have to buy new glasses for it. Oh, like do you have an ice moment, Rob? Are you having an ice phase? At bars or Artie's house. I'm not going to lie. I like those. Artie has one. I like those big square ice things, the ice cubes. Okay. That make me look cool. Okay, but that's not that radical. Like, what are we talking about? Like an Edward Scissorhands shape? Because there's like the, the ice ball thing? The ball. Yeah. That you put in a glass and it's just the whole glass? I have that too. Of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> and now there's also like the ice with the little twigs of rosemary in them. Ooh. Not. You know, for your gin and tonic. Yeah. You just I, sprinkle some rosemary in there. Mm. Anyway, my point is that's kind of a poverty that's a, encompassed in trends. definitely. Because we can't afford meat anymore, so we'll just get fancy water. We started, yeah, we a little bit of butter, that was one thing, and now we're down to water. Ah. Sounds like a Saturday night at Elton John's house. <laughs> Didn't we also have, like, canned tuna? Wasn't that a thing earlier? <laughs> yeah, tin, tin dates, I think. Thanks, Michelle. We'll be checking back in with you to see whether globalization's dead or just sick. And what's for dinner? <laughs> what's for dinner? <laughs> so that brings us to this week in local news. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or pretty much anywhere else. Anywhere. All news is global. It, all news is global. All news is local. So I know it's a little bit of a cliche, but I wanted to let everybody know, I know we have a lot of listeners here in Switzerland, that the Swiss parliament has voted to enact higher fines for people who are found to have littered or are littering, or they leave household refuse on public streets. Mostly Albanians. <laughs> of course, they don't pay their fines. This was voted by a very large majority, super majority of the Swiss parliament. This is going to happen. All six of them. <laughs> and this is going to be enacted and then you're going to be paying 300 francs if you litter in a public place 
So that's good. I just came back from New York and there's literally garbage everywhere. It's a hellhole. Or at least that's what I read in conservative magazines on the flight over. Well, of course, the Swiss People's Party, the UDC here in the French-speaking part was against this. Mm -hmm. They also believe that it's about personal responsibility unless you're rich. Or Credit Suisse. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're out there, folks, and I know you're probably eating a sandwich, maybe you're late, maybe you want to ball up that piece of paper that was around your kebab, as you might be doing, Mm. don't throw it down there. Or pizza kebab. Don't throw it down there. throw it in the garbage. You might end up in... Swiss prison. Swiss prison. Which is actually like a three-star hotel in most other countries. (laughs) Also, I wanted to bring you in here already because there's been a supply chain crisis. There is quite a big one, and it affects people locally. So the idea of Italians living life, I guess, without noodles might seem impossible, but things are getting worrying. So the price of pasta boxes in Italy rose 17.5% in March and 16.5% in April. So it's going down, but compared to the same period last year, it's a lot. There's downward pressure on the inflationary situation. Yeah, spaghetti bowls. According to the Italy Statistics Agency, double the national inflation rate, which was 8.8% last month. So it's quite a lot. But Italy's authorities are taking the view that this too shall pasta. And in fact, the pesto is yet to come price-wise. Get it? (laughs) (laughs) They've refrained from capping pasta prices and they've reassured consumers that the market would soon correct itself given that energy prices are dropping and the cost of raw materials is decreasing. So all is well. It's like that Kevin Bacon gift. Because if pasta is not cheap, if we can't load what, up on that, what and I know we've got some interns who are listening here, if pasta is not cheap, what are we going to be eating? Aperol spritz with ice. <laughs> exactly. With free ice. With ice. Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 48, brought to you by Artie's Watch Obsession. Hashtag Kublo. That unoccupied office tower next to you. And, of course, the green dwarf. That's actually a Vietnamese robusta tree. That's actually, you could have just said robusta coffee. And we also want to thank Annette from EIF for talking with us about what the WTO is doing to help developing countries trade. And of course, how you have to keep quiet on the bus here in Geneva. Or you might get fined. That's actually next up for that next in, up? in Swiss Parliament. Yeah, we also want to thank our executive producer, Michelle Olguin, and Valentina Saponata for helping us highlight the vibe shift, as well as produce this and every TS episode. So please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. But where can you subscribe so to it? If you haven't done so already, to make sure you catch our next episode coming out very soon. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcast. Really, anywhere you get your podcast. Anyway, I'm not going to make that reference because your family will put out a hit don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, better than cats. And Spotify. We read all of them, so please be gentle. Or Rob reads them. You can also follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at Trade.Splaining. Or email us your questions, comments the old-fashioned way at Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. I feel like I've got a, a parrot next to me. <laughs> and remember, folks, this episode can end soon enough. And remember, that's folks, what they should remember. And remember, folks, listen, respons- listen responsibly. Listen responsibly.